0: So from a design eye, I'm I'm walking these aisles, viewing it as a battlefield, and essentially trying to go, okay, who's doing what? What are the visual tropes happening in this category?
1: And where can I challenge? What's happening, ladies and germs? This is Alex Osterly, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Food Marketing Nerds. For those of you looking to hone in on your brand strategy and how to differentiate yourself in a crowded marketplace, this episode is going to be a goldmine for those who are looking for creative inspiration and how to get your brand strategy together. Get it together, people. On the show, we've got Fred Hart, Creative Director of Interact, which is one of the top branding and packaging design firms in the food and beverage industry. And they're based out of our home state of Colorado, so bonus points in my book. Fred is a thought leader on design thinking, especially in the food and beverage industry, and you'd have to pay a pretty penny for the advice that he's gonna give away in this episode for free. In this episode, you're gonna learn why great design might actually be the worst thing that can happen to a new company, how you should approach branding if you don't have a clear-cut strategy, what new trends are starting to gain traction in the food and beverage industry, and plenty more. So let's go hang out with Fred. Welcome to the Food Marketing Nerds podcast, where we talk marketing, branding, and social media with the smartest minds in the business. Here's your host, Alex Osterley. Fred, welcome to Food Marketing Nerds.
0: Thanks for having me, Alex. I appreciate it.
1: So can you tell the the nerd herd a little bit more about about Interact and, and how you got to the position you are today?
0: Absolutely. And I want to know first, did you name the Nerd Herd or is that a a self-proclaimed title by all your fans out there? Uh, I named him. Um, (laughs) That's great. Um, So yeah, I'm I'm Fred Hart. Uh, I am a creative director and a partner at Interact. We are a strategic branding and packaging design agency here in Boulder, Colorado. And what kind of makes us unique is we work exclusively with food and beverage companies. So everything we're dealing with ultimately comes down to packaging. And so it's a lot of CPG work. But what I think is so fascinating about the industry that we're in is it's really, in my eyes, the only form of competitive design. And what I mean by that is when you look at corporate identity or advertising or UX, UI, web, all of these different things, they kind of exist in their own vacuums. They really just need to do a great job of representing themselves and kind of teasing apart the differences. But with Food and bev. We are building brands that sit on shelves next to all of their direct competitors, and then you're also fighting for like share of stomach. So if I'm, you know, a kombucha, not only am I against all of those competitors, but I'm also against uh, juices and teas and all of the other beverages. It's uh, it really requires a chess game, which is I think the most exciting part for us.
1: Hmm. That's a really interesting perspective of thinking of it as stomach space more than just shelf space. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure you've read the book, Creative Confidence, or have heard of it at least. Uh, you know what? I honestly don't think I have. You should definitely read Creative Confidence. It's from the guys that founded IDEO. Okay. Makes sense. <laughs> um, and they, it's all about design thinking. So oh, I love that. So Creative Confidence is one of my all-time favorite books in regard to human-centered design. Yep. But a lot of what they discuss is very tech-focused in manufacturing. So just with design thinking in general, how does that play into the work that you do at Interact?
0: Yeah, I think it's the underpinning of everything that we do. You'll find a lot of design agencies that are really good at painting a specific type of picture. Or in other words, they're really great at building the same vehicle every time. But if I'm trying to get to the moon and you're building me a car, that clearly is not going to work. So we think of you know, design thinking as, like you mentioned, human-centric problem-solving. And I think it's important to understand the kind of differences in creative thinking or design thinking versus critical thinking. Because critical thinking is kind of, you know, the analysis of breaking down ideas. And design thinking is really like a creative process about building them up that I think lead to more emotional places than analytical places. And at the end of the day, all of our work has to be moving. You know, when we think about the fact that we are in consumers lives and ultimately we're getting people to spend their hard-earned money on these amazing brands and products that we get to partner with like that's a big deal that's that's moving people to put their money where their mouth is essentially I and mean, you have to be true and you have to be honest and you know everyone's favorite buzzword right now is authentic but honestly to have a lasting relationship which all good brands are like people you really re- need to resonate with the human condition and that's what we focus on
1: Is that kind of how you look at at branding and brands in in a way? Is that it's relatable to to a person?
0: Absolutely. I mean, if you think about like your group of friends or the people that you want to associate yourselves with, they have a certain set of ideals, personality traits, and beliefs. And the way that we adopt brands is very much the same. We surround ourselves with brands that are perhaps aspirational for us, right? Like no one no one really wants to hold up a mirror to themselves all day. And so it's about that sort of greater belief that also then in turn says something about them. You know, when we look at food and Bev, in Bev especially, it's inherently portable because it has to be in a bottle. And because of that, it turns into this like social badge or this form of social currency where I'm seen with it and it says something about me just as much as the shoes on my feet or the watch on my wrist. And being able to build that identity for a brand to resonate with a certain crowd is really rewarding.
1: So kind of hitting on that point, can you just give us a high level overview of what your approach to brand strategy with an established company who maybe needs a little guidance for their branding versus a startup who hasn't developed a brand at all?
0: Absolutely, and I'll just kind of dive into one of our case studies. So we're still continuing to work with an amazing craft beer company, Dogfish Head, out of Delaware, and they're been around for 21 years. They're one of the grandfathers of sort of the craft beer and even though craft beer is kind of going through its third wave right now, they've managed to stick around and become 13th largest. And, and not only that, but really build out a lifestyle brand for themselves. It's not just about beer. It's about Sam, the founder, these crazy stories, these music festivals, all of these other things. And when they approached us uh, a little over a year ago at this point, their packaging was all over the place and was kind of emblematic of this uh issue that they were having at shelf where the category becomes so competitive and so overcrowded that their mantra of off-center dales for off-center people which at the time of pushing against Budweiser and all the big boys 21 years ago made sense now everyone is trying to like out-hop one another (laughs) and and you know like just be as crazy as they can be so for us when we approached the project A lot of it was getting to know them, and we went to Delaware, and we did an immersion. We stayed at the inn. We went to the brewery. We went to the brew pub. We had dinner with Sam, um, some of his amazing team, um, and got got to understand the DNA. But then we had to turn our focus back outwards to the world and say, all right, what is Dogfish Head known for? What can they actually own in the marketplace that's unique to them? And at the end of the day, it was creativity. There is no other... Craft beer brand out there in the world that is as creative as Dogfish. And we had to find the problem that we're actually solving for people. And inherently, everyone wants to think that they are more creative than they might actually um, sort of put out there, right? Like we all aspire to be creative. And how can you make your beer be that symbol for your creativity, for your appetite for small risks? And um, ultimately, our sort of slight repositioning of the company, or refinement really, they always had it. And then the execution of that, through the branding, through the packaging, was showing off their list of ingredients and telling a narrative about all of the stories that went into the beer. I mean, just to give you an example, they have Midas Touch, which is an amazing beer. And essentially, Sam and uh, team hired an archeologist, and they went kind of overseas to a supposed King Midas's tomb. <laughs> And they found a vessel. They swabbed it, and there was this residue of a mead, which is an ancient type ale. And they basically recreated it with all of the ingredients that those people would have had from those regions. Really? Uh, yeah.
1: And that's insane.
0: And then they import it, right? And it's it's a highly priced beer because they don't sort of um, balance their portfolio. It's like, look, if it costs us X amount to import from you know Syrian wheat or Egyptian honey or something like that. You're going to see that in the prices, because I really believe in transparency. But that's just like one of a million stories behind all their beers. And so, our job was to begin to articulate that rich story, and also focus on the ingredients, which is their palette for creativity. Which at this time in the marketplace, everyone is obsessed with transparency in the f- in the food world, right? Like you think about Kind Bar, you think about Blueprint Juice. Like people are putting ingredients on the front panel. They're letting you see as much of the product through the packaging as possible. And yet no one had translated that to craft beer. So we found a really interesting conversation that no one was having that was relevant that we could leverage in the marketplace. And if you look at the Dogfish Head packaging, you know the entire handle is just covered in these ingredients that fall onto the front of the six-pack or four-pack. The idea being that every time I grab that handle, I have a literal handful of ingredients, mm-hmm. turn it over to the side, And you're seeing this bottle silhouette, you know, of the beer bottle, and it's filled with iconography of the hops or the wheat or the barley. And then there's usually always a storytelling icon embedded into that along with the narrative so that as a consumer, I know exactly what's inside my beer because we're also fighting these like faux authentic beer companies, like a shock top or a blue moon that might be using flavors or filler ingredients. And this is our way of saying Dogfish Head is true to the core and it's creative with the most amazing ingredients you'll find in the industry.
1: That's all new information to me, which makes me really like Dogfish Head a lot more. <laughs> that's, that's a really cool, really cool story how they weave in all the different, whether it's swabbing, what, what was it?
0: Yeah, and archaeologists, you know, kind of dive in. Like I couldn't even make this up if I wanted to. That's, that's how amazing, you know, the creative juices are.
1: Now, how do you bring all of that into a I guess a comprehensive package that is the branding and design. That's, that's so much to communicate.
0: Yes, and
1: it's about picking and choosing
0: your battles, right? Because if we start talking about all that stuff, we're gonna lose a lot of people that are just looking for beer at the end of the day. Um, and we have our hardcore enthusiasts, you don't stick around for 21 years unless you have people that are absolutely diehard fans. So it was sort of managing, how do we give them a dogfish head pack that's recognizable because it certainly went through a lot of change from where they've been. So get those hardcore people to sort of own and adopt and find those little nuggets of these stories now embedded into the actual packaging, but give this new wave of consumers that are still coming into craft beer, because we haven't even hit critical mass yet, and allow them to have a conversation that's useful to their needs, which is, what's in this beer? What is it gonna taste like? What can I expect? Um, So it's really a, a balancing act, and I think it's, um, it's sort of this notion of like the reveal. So when I'm standing back on shelf, the information I'm seeing is all about the product. But as I get closer and I'm holding things in hand, whether that's the cans they just launched for the first time, or the beer bottles, or they're really looking through a six pack, a story reveals itself. And that's kind of the rich engagement that leads people to really passionate experiences. Um, and it's all about making an impact.
1: Are the uh, redesigned packages up on Dogfish Head's website? They are. They absolutely are. They started to roll out in August,
0: and at this point, for the most part, their entire core line—so you're talking 60-minute, 90-minute, Namaste, and a number of others—are up all up on shelf. And they've just launched cans for the first time, which is a super exciting endeavor for them. Uh, can you know Sam, the founder, for a long time said he would never go into cans, um, but at the end of the day he's sort of a man of the people and he was hearing over and over and over that people wanted the portability and even the you know perceived freshness that cans is bringing to the industry and you have so many young craft beer companies really just launching only in cans that they've eliminated the stigma that once existed
1: but you can find all of this stuff on the store shelves now and i'm on their website now and their their new packaging is, is amazing you guys did a really good job Thanks. I will uh, send a check in the mail for that compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I'll uh, I'll give you your address after this. Um, so, in your opinion, I, I know you kind of mentioned that you can visualize uh, the way that a, a company should act based around their brand, uh, yep. kind of like the personality of a of a of actual person. Um, in your opinion, do archetypes still fit into a solid brand strategy? Is that trying to draw some unnecessary borders that don't necessarily have categories?
0: Yeah I mean you bring up a great question so you know archetypes are relevant whether we want them to be or not like they're kind of almost fundamental truths just as there are a set number of sort of genres in literature or you know cinema right everything can be sort of fit into these buckets and sometimes the names of those buckets evolve with taste and you know just like public interest but For us, archetypes are more about understanding the personality, not the why behind a brand. We're always looking for this like fundamental human truth behind the brand that ultimately resonates with people because that's what brands are built for. And then the archetype is kind of laid over the top to express the right style of execution or voice that that message gets, right? So I can be a brand about optimism. And if I'm the explorer archetype i might be a little self-indulgent in the way that i talk about that or it may be about bravery but if i'm a, like the the innocence of archetypes that message is going to be expressed in a very different way so for us we see archetypes as sort of expression filters of a higher message
1: gotcha so if you've got a client with it is i guess you you'd already spoke about Dogfish Head. If you've got a a client that has an established company, but not necessarily the most clear-cut brand strategy, where do you start with that? Do you go with, we think this is your brand archetype, or do you start with a why and then go from there?
0: We'll start basically as if we know nothing about the company. And we'll try to treat it like this is our first time ever meeting them or hearing about them. So for us, we do a lot of deep dives with our clients, um, big or small. Some of the dogfish heads of the world will go out and will do full several-day immersions. But for a lot of the young emerging or natural channel clients that we have, we have our partners basically fly to Boulder, Colorado, or sometimes we'll go to them, and we'll perform these half-day workshops where we really dig in. For us, it's really tapping into the founders and understanding their story and the human story, right? Because as you get bigger and bigger, you get far removed from that. That essence of what made you start in the first place, and we're trying to tap into that passion to express their why. So for us, you know, if like um, if you've got a brand, so we worked with a local Boulder favorite here, Bobo's, recently. Oh yeah, phenomenal company, great products. Uh, Barrel, the founders, an amazing woman, and you know they had been doing these oat bars, and for so long, the brand had just been about being fresh baked, and they were focused on kind of what they were, not who or why they existed. And I mean, just to give a little insight, the name of the brand Bobo's is uh, Beryl's daughter's nickname. So Beryl's daughter's Mm -hmm. name is Alex, but she called her Bobo growing up. And one day, Alex, aka Bobo, wanted to make oat bars in the family kitchen on like a Sunday, rainy day. And so they did that, and Beryl had this epiphany moment of, I don't want to work in banks, I don't want to do a corporate nine-to-five, I want something that makes people feel great, and I enjoy this moment with my daughter, and so I'm going to create a brand doing that. And for 13 years, she's been building this company solely doing that. But when we got in touch with them, you know, the bar category had exploded, right? And you, you've got everything from Cliff Bar to Pro Meal to Kind and, and everything in between, and our work with them was not so much throwing out everything that they'd done, but diving back in as if we knew nothing and asking, why did you do this and what makes it unique? And what we came out of those conversations with was an understanding that Bobo's is the brand that brings us home. And what that means is when you think about sort of the products that you make at home and the warmth of the home uh, and the caring of you know your grandmother making baked goods for you, that's essentially what the Bobo Oat Bar is. It's a product you could actually still make in any kitchen in America. I dare you to try that with a Kind bar or even a cliff bar. These things are like slab extruded and yeah. require a factory line to put it all together. Um, the other thing, though, was you know, in the brand's positioning, not only are we taking, giving you a sense of the home that you probably came from or aspire to have had, but we're also giving you a small piece of home to take with you out to the world. And it was really about the emotional nutrition than it was the physical nutrition that everyone else talks about. Whether it's like protein, you know, uh, fats, all of these different things, we were focused on a different type of conversation and understanding that we were bringing the perimeter of the store, the bakery aisle, to center aisle, and that was really unique for us to have as a positioning. And it's it's definitely serving the brand well now as we've kind of redesigned them and they're starting to launch innovation. But I think that's a perfect example of a brand that had been established, had a certain sense of like who they were, how they should act. But we needed to go back in, reopen everything and clean off the slate a little bit and rebuild. But the story was always there.
1: And I love Out Bars. They're one delicious. <laughs> and I I have seen their new branding and it's it's impressive. I love it a lot. It definitely incorporates their brand story and what they had before so that they're it ties in what their existing customer base already loves about the brand. And then it's definitely more appealing to someone who's never heard about them.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing of you've got a lot of people here, in, especially the state of Colorado. How do you extend that love and warmth and that story to be bigger than just Boulder uh, to the rest of the country? And so that's, that's what our work focused on.
1: When it comes to branding and design, they're are a lot of psychological factors at play that could influence how someone perceives a brand, and I know you guys do a ton of discovery where you're diving into the why of the brand and the the story behind the founders, etc. But if you look at, I mean, do you guys take psychological factors into or these psychological cues, whether they're subconscious or, or conscious, to play into your approach to design?
0: So they definitely exist, right? Like, I mean, the subconscious is a very real thing, and it it's participates in every decision we make in the real world. So there's no denying that it certainly has a level of influence. Now, there there are agencies that will do eye scanning tests, uh, heat mapping, um, will maybe argue for certain color palettes that are you know high impact, high contrast, memorable, et cetera. But I find that sort of approach to be very manufactured. And at the end of the day, if we're doing our job right, We're telling a story through visuals, and we have a mantra in the studio of people don't read, they recognize. And that's probably the biggest sort of psychological cue that we take into all of our work, is understanding the fundamental truths to iconography, to symbols, essentially. It's the reason why a picture is worth a thousand words. And if you um, see, like, you know, if I'm holding a can in my hand, and it's just red, you will instinctively know that that is Coca-Cola. It's the same reason why I can have a small teal box in my hand and you'll know it's Tiffany's, right? Like you recognize those things. You didn't even have to read any of it. And our whole goal, I mean, the ultimate, you know, sort of achievement for us would be to create packaging that didn't have a single piece of typography on it. Like not a single piece of messaging that you could look at and fully understand. Now, we're a ways away from being able to do such a ambitious feat, but I think that's what we aspire to do. And in all of our work, we want people to recognize an element before they have to try to read something. Because I can always choose whether I want to read or not read, a billboard, a newspaper, an article, whatever, but I can never choose to not recognize something.
1: Hmm. Best quote of the, of the interview so far. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so th- that kind of leads me to the next question. I mean, anyone who's worked in merchandising or branding walks through yep. a grocery store with a completely different perspective than the typical consumer for the rest of your life once you've worked in it then it you're ruined for life yeah absolutely (laughs) so what are some of the things that you pay the most attention to when you're walking down a grocery store aisle I have a very different view than most
0: people because I'm scanning the entire shelves looking for things that have changed right it's almost like I'm trying to will some sort of photographic memory to understand like oh it looks like Nabisco's Oreo just started to pivot with their graphics and they're doing X, Y, and Z different. Or, oh, it looks like someone just went through a refresh. Or, wow, I've never seen this before. Looks like it's a complete redesign of something. So from a design eye, I'm I'm walking these aisles, viewing it as a battlefield and essentially trying to go, okay, who's doing what? What are the visual tropes happening in this category? And where can I challenge? Uh, Another one of our mantras is challenge the category, not the consumer, and what that ultimately means is don't be different for different sake. If I look at the soup category right now, I'm looking at an aisle full of brands that have a me too approach from uh, a packaging standpoint of everyone is either showing me a spoon of product or they're showing me a bowl of product and everyone's having the exact same conversation. And there's a real opportunity to zig while the category zags there. But how do I do that so I don't alienate people's ability to perceive taste or appetite appeal or the things that are are big drivers? You know, an example I love to give is you look at the popcorn category and for the most part, and we're talking about pre-popped popcorn, but you you could throw a microwave in there. Everyone's got pictures of popped popcorn on their packaging. Like who in this day and age doesn't know what popcorn looks like? right it's like you know it's like being told how to put a on a seatbelt in an airplane it's like i got it but what i'm getting at is boom chicka pop a brand by angie's launched and they don't have a single piece of photography on their packaging it's big it's bold it's bright colors it's personality driven which you'd never seen in popcorn before and it entirely disrupted that category because it said here are all these conventions that everyone is playing by We're going to challenge those, but we're not going to challenge the consumer because the truth there is, is they don't need to see it. And I love that approach. And and now you're seeing a lot of companies be a lot more expressive within popcorn, not just talking about what they are, because the second that you're having the what conversation, you're commoditizing yourself. It's all about why. And they've really elevated the entire conversation that category is now
1: trying to have. Hmm, That's an interesting perspective. Not challenging the consumer. I, I I think it's so easy to get lost. in how do you differentiate yourself without considering the, I guess, the end user?
0: Absolutely. I mean, you know, we can't be designing for ourselves. You know, that would be art. And I think we're really focused on the human element.
1: So in the sa- on the same topic of, of walking through grocery stores and really taking uh, a hard look at the different shifts in the, in the, in brands and whatever else you're looking for. Just in general, your line of work, there are progressive companies, especially in Boulder in the natural foods industry that are coming to you for strategic guidance, which means that you have to be on the bleeding edge of bleeding edge, if you will. (laughs) Yep. So can you give us a little insight into what it is or where you're looking for cues that might indicate that an idea has, or a trend has some substance behind it?
0: Yeah. Um, you know, we go to 14 trade shows a year, Uh, most of our clients are actually outside of Boulder or Colorado. Um, We're talking New York, LA, San Francisco, Chicago. We're traveling all over the place. We're part of a food and beverage incubator called Excel Foods in New York, um, where we help mentor a lot of the sort of classes of brands that they take on, um, which are very young brands. So we're getting to see a lot of bleeding edge stuff just by attending all of these things. But for us, it's always going to the most forward-thinking grocery stores, so that would be a Buy Right in San Francisco or an Erewhon in Los Angeles. These are people that are really fostering kind of like out-there products, bleeding edge stuff. And then it, it it's really going to a lot of restaurants and meeting with chefs and visionaries who are putting out unique experiences into the world where we will see sort of a groundswell of potential innovation. So. You know, you would see the use of quinoa or kale years ahead of the sort of mainstream trend in restaurants or food trucks or all of these sort of different avenues. So for us, it's getting as close to the source of true culinary innovation um, because ultimately the industry will start to replicate what works at those small ground levels. You know, going to farmers markets every time we're in a different city you know, that's what we really focus on. And our our Instagram is really just all about our journey through this food and beverage world and all the crazy things we're seeing. And that's kind of how we approach um, trying to find these trends and connect the dots. It's not just about making observations. It's about drawing insights and making leaps from
1: those observations.
0: Nothing is ever going to be fact-based. If it was, everyone would know it and
1: everyone would be able to, to bank on them. Speaking of which, when you're trying to get this interview scheduled, I know you are going to the Fancy Food Show out in San Francisco. Yep. Were there any interesting emerging design trends or food categories that, that you saw starting to emerge?
0: Yeah, certainly were. So I think right now we're seeing a ton of shrubs and vinegars sort of launching into the market. So we're seeing a lot of drinking vinegars, which is going to be new for a lot of people, but it's kind of riding on the coattails of kombucha, if you will, of a uh, type of beverage that's been around for, you know, eons, but is now finally making its way into mainstream America as uh, this really sort of functional, healthy-for-you beverage set. So vinegars and shrubs are definitely starting to grow, and you'll see those a lot of places now, especially, like, at a Whole Foods and stuff like that, but even certain Kroger's or Safeways are starting to get in there. I think we've been seeing a redefining of the word diet in the natural food segment, recently um so (laughs) yeah because i certainly don't want to say that i'm on a diet but i do want to say that i'm eating skinny popcorn or (laughs) not a diet it's a lifestyle bro (laughs) (laughs) absolutely (laughs) gains um uh but you know there was like a a salami brand at fancy foods that was skinny salami there are skinny almonds there are all these skinny type of products or there are things that are called wisps or crisps or things that are just like Lighter um, sounding that are basically uh, veiled words of saying lower calorie, uh, lower carbs, whatever. So it's really interesting to see a unique vernacular develop for this healthier world that we're all living in. You know, natural and organic continues to see tremendous growth, and now it has its own set of terms that have always been around in food, but you're just seeing it move away from conventional you know diet terms and stuff like that i think the other thing that we're noticing is kind of like the snackification of sweets you know it started with arguably sheila g's like brownie brittle or bark thins hmm. and you're seeing brands uh develop these indulgent products but in a way that makes you feel like they're for everyday use not just like the most precious chocolate bar you've ever had or something that was really like You know, if I'm going to have a Butterfinger every day, I'm going to feel pretty crappy about myself. (laughs) But if I'm having snacking chocolate or, um, you know, they're even, uh, Smash Mallow is a snacking marshmallow brand. Uh, One of the flavors has like chia seeds in it, right? Like you're seeing like the use of ingredients that make me feel like there's a health halo around it that I don't have to feel as bad about.
1: You were talking about Excel, is it Excel Foods? Yeah, Excel Foods. Excel Foods, the incubator where, I know you you mentor and advise multiple different food and beverage companies. So what are some of the most common issues that you see food and beverage companies struggle with in regard to branding and design?
0: Yeah, um, we're fortunate to also speak at BevNet, which is kind of the largest beverage network. We talk about that exact subject a lot of the times to their education classes. You know, the most common thing that I'm seeing is brands are so eager out of the gate to just tell everyone what they are. And sometimes that's necessary if you're truly creating a category that hasn't existed. But for a lot of the times, everyone falls into a predefined place in the store or in consumers' minds, more importantly. And if you're just talking about what you are, again, you're commoditizing yourself. Like when you're having the what conversation, you're talking about a product and people are pragmatic about products. I'm going to look at it and I'm going to go... How much does it cost? Can I get it cheaper elsewhere? But as soon as you start talking about brand and the why, you're increasing sort of margin. So you're less susceptible to price wars and private label, and you start to embody something greater. So, you know, whether that's coconut water, you know, everyone knows that coconut water is hydrating and that it's a single source thing and it's from nature. So that's, you know, that's a conversation you don't need to waste your breath on. Now tell me why your coconut water is different from a Zico, which is very like clean and modern and kind of like for the urban lifestyle individual or person that wants that sort of mindset versus a Vitacoco, which is kind of about fun, celebratory island health. And so if if you're coming out with this new coconut water, you better carve out an interesting place I think the perfect example is like when you look at the beverage category for energy drinks, you had Red Bull who created the category. And then you had people come in identifying the fact that Red Bull was not talking to under leveraged markets like Monster, you know, went after this sort of alternative lifestyle, extreme individual where Rockstar went after the party animal and perhaps, you know, the, the frat lifestyle. They were essentially all the same product. None of them were really talking about the fact that they provided anything else than energy, but they said, this is who we are, this is what we believe in, and people really associated with that.
1: That's another really insightful look at it, where as soon as you start talking about what you are, or what you sell versus why you do what you do, exactly, you just commoditize yourself. Yeah, I mean,
0: you know, the best talk on the internet, I think, for anyone sort of starting a brand is Simon Sinek's. TEDx talk where he talks about, I think it's the golden circle and, and how the conversation you need to start with is why and he gives this beautiful example of Apple that I'm not even going to butcher on this <laughs> podcast for the users but um, I would highly recommend listening to that. It's, it's phenomenal.
1: Yeah, we'll definitely link that up in the show notes. So if you were to launch your own line of products, of food products, what, where would you start with branding and design? Uh, I actually wouldn't which is the best
0: part I think of what we do. You know, when, when we have these talks, We tell everyone that great design is the fastest way to kill a bad product. And for anyone out there starting a fruit or beverage brand, the last thing—not the last thing—but you need to start with your product, right? Like it has to be amazing. Because what we do is, as um, designers and brand builders, is we develop a promise, right? So when you're at shelf, you're going to see something. And it's going to promise you a certain set of things, whether that's values or taste or any of these other things. But the equation for any brand is your your promise or your presentation plus your follow through equals your brand. And if I give you an amazing promise and your follow through, aka the product quality or experience, falls short of that promise, I'm never going to try it again. It'll be a one-time purchase or trial and I'm and you're going to die on shelf because people aren't going to give you a shot after that. You will find brands out there in the world that have a very poor promise or presentation, right? Like, haven't invested in branding or design, and yet the quality of the product and that experience is so phenomenal that it will create this small groundswell of people that are like, look, you just have to try it, right? And you trust your friends and family, even if you're skeptical about the way that it looks. And the example I love to give is Tito's Vodka. I don't know if you've ever had it, but I mean you know uh any night not just a friday saturday night it's it's great um but the branding on that you know looks like something that's maybe been distilled once in your uncle's garage right (laughs) it's like this craft thing it's not much design but that's part of the the authenticity of it and that's a brand that's been able to succeed because because the product speaks for itself it's so good right the other side of that is Grey Goose perhaps, right, like where I have an, a great presentation and a product that's equally good. So it will present less hurdles at shelf for trial. If it looks well designed and it looks premium and it has all the right cues, I'm much more willing to sort of adopt in and, and jump over the hurdles of price or whatever or just you know, insecurity of something I've never tried before. And so you know, if you're starting a fruit or beverage brand, you really got to focus on, on the product. On the, on the follow-through of the promise before that w- we can set you up with uh, you know, the ideal communication at Shelf.
1: Yeah, I think that's really sound advice. If a company knows that they need a rebrand or is looking for some strategic packaging redesign, what, when does it make sense for them to get in touch with an agency like Interact?
0: I think when someone has come to the understanding, willingness, and ability to invest in their own future, which can be a very tough thing. Right, like if you think you've got a multi-million-dollar brand on your hands, right? The potential for one. How much are you willing to pay to realize that? And that's a tough thing to ask people to put a value on their idea. That's my way of saying that what we do is not cheap. But if you think that you know this this brand or your product really has legs, then it's probably worth investing in. What I think all All entrepreneurs should know is, you know, in working with us or any other agency, what you're not guaranteed is success, but it's potential. You are essentially trying to align as many of the stars as you can to build growth. And we certainly facilitate a large role in your messaging, your positioning, your branding, your design. But you have to have the right co-packer, the right manufacturer, the right regulatory lawyers, the right, you know, uh, accounts, all of these different things. What we do is basically prep you to have the most success or the most momentum possible. But, I, you know, there's no one in the industry that can guarantee you success based off design. But if you're willing to take that risk, you can get really amazing places with it.
1: Paying for potential. I like that.
0: And that's what we all do. You know, if, if it were guaranteed, everyone would have a design agency working on their stuff.
1: Right. And there's so many different, I've had so many different interviews with, with successful food entrepreneurs who have, that's the biggest piece of advice that they recommend to every single one of their, if they're a lot of them have worked in the incubators or are still on the boards of, of multiple different food companies. And yep. their first recommendation is don't have your cousin who knows how to do Photoshop design <laughs> your packaging because it's, it's worth investing in great branding and packaging design. And I think that yeah. is one of the most true, it's one of the truest statements I've I've heard. Absolutely. I mean, we come up against a
0: lot of those type of conversations and we just say, hey, look, you might have someone that knows how to, how to design, how to execute, but what you need is design thinking, which is where we started this podcast. And it's really, you know, with an agency, you're getting multiple people all tackling the same problem or asking questions to maybe find out if the problem we've got at hand actually isn't really the, the one we should be tackling. And you're bringing a lot of people's different experiences. Every time we work on a project, we build a new set of experiences. And that's ultimately what you're paying for, is the ability to problem-solve and tapping into potential.
1: So there are a couple of questions that we ask each of our guests. Are there any productivity hacks that you use on a daily basis to to keep you on your game?
0: Yeah, um, I check email as little as possible during the day. You know, I've got an amazing team uh, at Interact, whether it's the design or account side, like I work with phenomenal people and I'm lucky to say that. And, you know, for me being the creative director, my time on emails is less, far less valuable than me diving in on creative problem solving or helping any of the other team members out. So, you know, I check email really kind of once in the morning to make sure that I hit all that stuff. And then late afternoon, you know, at night basically, I'll dive back into, you know, 50, 70 emails or whatever. But um, by not constantly checking I can be that much more focused at a time and dedicate to tasks and I think the other thing for me is uh, basketball which is just basically exercise for anyone but it's my form of meditation you know a lot of people in Boulder meditate and uh, I haven't found that niche yet but when I play I just zone out and it becomes habitual and mechanical and is the sort of reprieve I need from the day
1: do you have any books that you always recommend to people or that have influenced the way you think about design? Yeah. I mean, when I think about
0: um, what really set me on the path to get where I am today, it was reading a lot of books that my sort of mentors had given me. And, and one of them was 22 Immutable Laws of Branding. Really great book. Uh, dives into some case studies, so it's not totally dry. But it's a great place to start understanding the sort of playing field and some of the fundamental truths that brands are built upon. But, you know, part of it really, I think, is you need to educate yourself to understand all the rules and then how to break them. As I continue to gain more experience just within my own life and I get older, I find that I actually become more, uh, what's, not risk adverse, but essentially the opposite. Like, as I learn more and more of these rules, I actually become uh, more of a challenger. And basically, I think that a lot of people should be reading things to, one, just set a bar of understanding, continue that so eventually you feel comfortable and you know why you think you ought to break certain things. The other book that I just finished reading was Originals by Adam Grant, which is about how nonconformists move the world. Really great one. Adam Grant is like a professor at the Warren School of Business and goes through the opening chapter with his own mistake of not being an early partner in Warby Parker, because three of his students had approached him about that. And he turned it down because he didn't think they had what it took to be dis- as disruptive as they wanted to be. And they essentially didn't conform to his preconceived notions of like what the ideal entrepreneur looks like. And he kind of takes that model and flips it on its head. And I think it's really ex- inspiring for anyone that wants to make a change in the world that also feels like they haven't taken that sort of ideal path. Think it celebrates
1: that thank you so much for coming on onto the show i i love having these kinds of conversations just around branding and, and the strategy around it and i you guys do really great work at interact and a lot of that is is a, a testament to, to your creative ability so thank you again
0: absolutely i mean thank you and uh you know i'm fortunate to say that it's not me we've got some amazing team members but uh the platform you provide is phenomenal so keep putting out great stuff i'll be listening where can uh, where can people find
1: out more about interact
0: yeah, just go to interactboulder.com or check us out on Instagram. InteractBoulder, that's probably going to be some of the more engaging stuff.
1: Awesome. Well, Fred Hart, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Food Marketing Nerds Podcast. For interview transcripts or to download your free social media ebook, check out foodmarketingnerds.com.